0: It's time for the show that brings the magic right to your speakers. Ears Up!
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's another fine edition of the Ears Up Podcast. The podcast that brings you all the uh, the the rad interviews, man. We have such a good interview for you guys today. It's gonna be real good. I have no idea. I, I, I kind of just want to get to him right now. Um, but but I want to hold out too, cause it's so good. I want to tease it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> So good. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot for joining us. This is episode twenty two. Which is kind of amazing. We're
2: getting old. We're
1: getting old. We, Terrence, do you remember when we first started doing the show? What date? What was the first uh, pr- the first podcast broadcast ooh, ooh, ooh.
3: date? Man, tell me right um, now. Uh, March thirteenth, two thousand fourteen. No, absolutely incorrect. Wow. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sorry. I meant um, September 2000. 2013. <laughs> no, incorrect. Very different. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's like late September. Even I don't really know. Yeah, okay. I Isn't forgot. It?
2: We looked it up like yeah. yesterday, but I can't remember now.
3: It seems like it's been forever. And that sounds yes. negative, but... It doesn't know. sound
1: negative <laughs> at all. It, it's factual. It seems like it's been forever. Yeah. Absolutely. I looked It's like, wow. I, 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 cause I was telling Taryn, our year anniversary is coming up soon. At what some are we point. doing?
2: I don't know. Right. We well, should do something. We
1: have some cool stuff. So if if you're a fan at all of the... Uh, of the, of the um, the blog, and, I mean, you know, why wouldn't you be? Uh, you know, we do have some cool coaster packs for sale, mm-hmm. uh, so you can check those out. That helps us. Uh, you know, some people don't just like donating, but they would actually like to purchase stuff. So, yeah. And we have some cool swag, and we're getting some more. We're getting some more pins. Taryn has done a couple new pins yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So right. we'll be getting those to the store. So if you want to uh, support us, do that. Uh, you know, buy a bunch of stuff or just donate, whatever you want to do. Uh, but I think we'll, maybe we'll be giving away some of that stuff. Uh, you know, Taryn and I are going down to Disneyland in a couple of weeks. Yep. You right there, buddy? Not, without, yeah. not
2: with Terrence.
1: I know. Not with Terrence. We don't do anything with Terrence no. except sit in the sweaty uh, <laughs> studio here. Got kids, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll get some cool swag from there. There's some limited edition stuff happening in Disneyland, so maybe we'll snag some of that. And then when it goes off sale, then we can give it away to people as kind of like a thank you thing. Um, what are you saying? Flip on the switch. Oh, yeah. Well, no one out there really cares.
3: I know, but. Just in uh, case. We can we can
1: pretend. Terry, do me a favor, dude. <laughs> yeah. Act- activate. Use your special powers. Activate okay. the AC, would you? Sure. It is
3: roasting in here. Yeah, it is. I have a sweatshirt on. Yeah. You should take that thing off.
1: You're crazy. Uh, anyway, find us on iTunes. We're on TuneIn Radio. We're on Stitcher. Uh, we have a lot of good reviews on iTunes. We're five stars. Yeah. It's amazing. It's actually really cool. It's it's very humbling, again. I mm-hmm. use that word a lot, but it it, it is true. Uh, I really enjoy receiving the feedback from everybody, so... uh I appreciate that. We're also Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest.
2: Oh, I I have something to say about Instagram. Jump in there. I just wanted to uh, let everybody out there know that every once in a while we do little contests on Instagram. Oh. And I wanted to give a shout out to Goggles99 because she just uh, won our second contest.
4: Oh,
1: Goggy Gogg's.
2: So I'll be sending her some some ears up swag.
1: Nice. Cool. Awesome.
2: Yeah, so it's going to be cool. So follow us and maybe you can win... Things as
1: well. (laughs) Maybe. Only you. Yes, things. Uh, If you have feedback for the show, uh, that goes to Taren, T-A-R-E-N, at earsup-podcast.com. Compliments go to Terrence at earsup-podcast.com. Anything else you want, Jason, earsup-podcast.com. I am currently accepting invitations to the uh, 1901 Club, (laughs) to uh, Club 33, and actually, more to the point, to to uh, be admitted onto your family's Club Thirty Three membership. <laughs> so, you know, oh, send me what you want. Invitations are now being received. Wow. Um, you have until October thirty first, um, and then you I will no a, longer be. Why do you be, have a cutoff date? Well, here, can I just tell you? Okay, Terrence, per, you know, I'm going to turn you off because I'm going to whisper something to Terrence now. Because if you give them a deadline, (laughs) it makes it seem more important. Oh, okay. okay. Got it. Shh, don't tell Terrence. Uh, What else? Uh, What do we have to do before we get to uh, uh, this thing here? Uh, Don't forget to check our blog, earsup-podcast.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Quickly, feedback, Terrence, before you start, actually, we have... I
2: think we have a special one. We
1: have the first ever audio feedback, the first ever (laughs) audio feedback uh, that we've ever gotten here. Uh, let's see if we can pull this up. It was left on our hotline that we don't have. Here we go. Hello there.
3: This is Sean Connery, and not only is Ears Up my favorite podcast, but I'll never stop until I finally secure a date with Taron <laughs> or Terrence. Either one is fine with me. Cheers <laughs> to you, Ears Up. Wow! We're add, both wow. of you. That's big. Should you guys fight over who gets to
1: date Sean Connery? Oh, you can have him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, shoot, that's what I was going to say.
1: <laughs> um, that's funny. Go ahead, Terry. I like it. What's the. Uh, uh, we what also
2: have got? one from uh, a guy named Travis. He wrote in and said, uh, Let me start by saying, not only is this the best Disneyland podcast, it may be the best podcast of all time.
4: Wow. Wow. Right? Yeah.
2: Uh, I'm a new listener, and I'm getting caught up with the episodes. You guys totally make my commute awesome. Four exclamation points.
3: What? Four of
2: them? Four. yes
3: yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, we are the best podcast ever. <laughs> I,
2: I think we might be. Uh, love the banter between you guys and girl. Wanted to share what Disneyland ride I'd turn into a movie. So he must oh. have just listened to that one. I know. Isn't that great? So he goes, how about Speed 5, the people mover? Kiana Reeves, <laughs> right?
3: Oh, wait, are there four already? I think yeah. so. <laughs> oh, Are you serious?
1: Who knows? Maybe it's like Leonard Part Six, where there oh, were no yes. five parts. Great yeah. movie, yeah. by the way. Uh,
2: Kiana Reeves plays Rod, a retired cop brought back to the beat uh, by a mad bomber, Zach Galifianakis. Is, 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 is. <laughs> is that how you spell it? He says. <laughs> um,.
1: He's Greek. Leave him
2: alone. Who's uh, planted bombs on the people mover, and if the cars drop below three miles per hour, they will explode. (laughs) And the the remaining park guests have to watch The Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy. This is funny. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Female lead played by Sandy Bullock, obviously, and directed by, oh, let's say Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Keep it up. Keep up the great work. Me likey. And he, he ends it with Frito. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Frito. Uh, great feedback, Travis. Thank you yeah, very much. Terrific. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I want to apologize during your feedback. I accidentally belched in the microphone. It was very rude. I apologize. I kind of just, I thought we were all just hanging out and I just, <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Kids, if you're listening, it's very inappropriate to do in public. Okay, let's get to our interview. Yes, okay. let's do it. So on the phone with us right now, we have uh, none other than Dexter Francis who just wrote a book called uh, Building Disney's Dream, uh, which is a book about the guys who hired to turn Walt's uh, crazy ideas into realities. Let's get Dexter on the phone here. Dexter, are you with us,
0: sir? I am with you, yes.
1: Perfect. Love it. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to, to spend with us talking about aero development.
0: Well, you're quite welcome. I'm delighted to do it.
1: So how did you get in, interested in aero in the first place?
0: That's a great question. Um, Arrow was was located in Mountain View, California, and I grew up—well, not exactly grew up—but my family moved to Palo Alto in the early '60s, and I still remember driving up the Bayshore Freeway by what was then the Monta Vista Drive-in, and seeing this roller coaster track there. Didn't really know what was going on or why it was there or anything like that. Uh, didn't know much about them at the time. But um, about two years ago, I guess it was, I, I happened across Rob Reynolds' wonderful book, uh, Roller souls from Flying Saucers. You may be familiar with that. Hmm. And as, as I read it uh, and became more familiar with the Arrow story, it, it just caught my attention, uh, partly because I was growing up there at a time when they were doing business, and although I never crossed paths with, with any of them, uh, a couple of the founders lived within a mile or two of my house I, I'm, I had ridden by one of their homes unknowingly uh, <laughs> on the way to the Palo Alto Airport on my bicycle when I was in, in junior high so it, it just it caught my interest on a very personal level So and then as, as I learned more about them just the whole engineering thing that they did really really caught my attention, too, because that's my background, is design engineering. Ah, okay.
1: okay. We definitely want to jump into that. So for those uh, who don't know uh, who Arrow Development, uh, what, what they did, what, what did they do for, for Disney and, and, and the park there?
0: Well, Walt contracted with Arrow to do the ride systems, and, and we'll clarify that in a little bit. For a, a significant number of the early rides at Disneyland, these are ones you're all going to know and remember, <laughs> uh, M- Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Oh, of course. Uh, Snow White's Scary Adventures. Uh, they did the, uh, the roller coaster portion of the Matterhorn. They were also involved in, in some work on the submarine ride, the original submarine ride. Uh, there's a fairly extensive list. I, I think in total between... Anaheim and Orlando, they were involved in about eighteen rides. Wow! That many of us know and love. Uh, they were involved in the Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. So some real big hitters there, and um, of course, very few. Pe- I-, I think very few people actually know about this. And there's some reasons for that that we could talk about later if you want. <laughs> so they, they, they played a huge role in enabling Disney to do what he wanted to do, uh, both in in Anaheim and Orlando.
1: Uh, if you could uh, give me a, a give us a brief introduction to these men
0: sure the the four founders um, were actually worked together that well first off, the four founders were uh, Andy Anderson, Carl Bacon, Bill Hardiman, and Ed Morgan. They had all worked together at a place in Sunnyvale, California called the Joshua Hendy Ironworks, mm-hmm. who was one of the large Military contractors there in the area during World War two and they did big stuff. We're talking about the, the gates for the. As I recall, they were involved in the project to some of the loose gates or the, uh, the gate uh, the, for the Panama Canal. Wow. These, wow. these guys, these <laughs> guys knew how to make big, tough. And uh, they were making marine engines for the Navy for the Liberty ships, and for a long time, were a, you know just a major employer there in the Sunnyvale area. And the four of them had worked there together during the war years, knew one another fairly well, had polished their skills in building big systems. And as the end of the war approached, and there were actually some, some union related issues there as well, the four of them decided they were gonna go out on their own mm-hmm. and start their own business. Initially just as a all around machine shop. And some of the early things that they did Included uh, rebuilding automobile engines, I mean basically selling machine used machine tools for the first two or three years they were basically doing anything they possibly could to keep the doors open yeah and um, really uh, i I don't think when they started they had the slightest idea that they were going to end up doing ride systems for disney <laughs> it, it, it was it was and it was about well they, they they opened the business basically in forty six Okay. And then business, uh, business grew. And, and around 49 or 50, their first real significant projects involved doing a, a little steering wheel paddle boat for the city of Oakland, California, that they, they were using up there at the Peralta Park. Mm-hmm. And they also had done, uh, started to do carousels. They did one for the city of San Jose for Alum Rock Park. So they kind of got their toe in the water there. Uh, San Jose loved the carousel. Uh, Peralta loved the the stern-wheel paddle boat. It was called Will Bell. They also started to do uh, other kinds of um, er, more mobile amusement park kinds of systems. They were making kiddie car rides and, and things like that. Usually things that went around in a circle, you know, around a, <laughs> around a central pole. Although they also did some some boats that that you know went in a little flume. They they had a demonstration park there in Palo Alto, at a place called Town and Country Village, right across from Palo Alto High School, where they had these rides on display. And in the, the holidays, the, the they really. The the vendors there loved them because the parents could come and drop their kids off at playland at, at Playland and then go shopping and come back and pick them So
1: can you imagine? That right across the street from your high school is the amusement park <laughs> testing ground. That'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, by the by the time I went to Pali, Palo Alto High, they were long gone. Cause yeah. They, they closed the park down. But yeah, I can still remember. Uh, well, in fact, a little bit of a diversion here. I I had the opportunity to interview two of the daughters of two of the founders of Arrow, within the last several months, and one of them uh, had shared some photographs with me that she had of, of Playtown, which I had never seen before, and I don't think they'd been published before, and, and much to my, my great amazement as I was looking at the scene, sort of scenery in the background, I immediately identified the the overcrossing there where Alma Street went over Embarcadero in and Palo Alto. I've been by it so many times. <laughs> and I said, well, Linda, Linda, this is uh, or Carolyn, this is this is Playtown. This is the first photo I've seen of Playtown anywhere, on the web or anywhere else. So it was quite exciting to uh, to come across those. But uh, <laughs> back, back, to your, back to your question, though. Uh, or you can Pose another one, if you like. (laughs) They 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 started, I said basically as a machine shop, got into doing amusement park rides in and around the Bay Area. And then uh, about 1953, they were at the National Association of Amusement Parks and Beaches in Chicago, uh, right around, in fact, they'd been there the year before, but that was also the year, it was December 4th of 1953, in fact, that Disney had sent... Uh, Harrison Price and C.V. Wood to Chicago to have a meeting with the the operators of the, of the largest amusement parks in the company. William Schmidt was there from Chicago River Butte, Trains. Uh, Harry Bat was there, Ed Schoen from Coney Island, and then George Whitney, who was the founder of Playland at the Beach in San Francisco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Price and Wood had them come in and and they pitched Disneyland to, and their response was overwhelming. It'll never fly. <laughs> Why not? So, well, there were a number of reasons that they were looking at the world through the eyes of guys that were running parks that were like Tony Island. and they believed that, number one, that doing custom rides would never be profitable. you You couldn't get enough people to go through. you They were going to be breaking down all the time. Huh. They, they just they just didn't get Walt's vision. And thank gratefully of uh, Harrison Price or uh, Buzz Price and, and c v wood uh, didn't didn't believe him. And of course <laughs> Walt didn't believe him either. But they got some useful feedback at this meeting. And uh, I'm pretty sure that it was either that year or the next year that Disney saw the model of or heard about the little belt, paddle wheel boat that Arrow had done for the city of Oakland. Mm -hmm. Initially, because there's a letter, actually, that's back and forth between Disney and Arrow talking about the fact that they weren't able to provide Disney with the data sheets that they needed because they weren't ready yet. <laughs> oh. It's it too uh, new. Yeah. It was yeah. It was, the the little bell was just too new. And the 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 down the downwash of this though was that Disney was interested in what they were doing. He knew he had to find some help in order to do the ride systems for the park, and came up to Mountain View and and met with them and ended up seeing these tracked vehicle rides that Arrow had been building for for some of their other customers and essentially turned one of those into a, a prototype vehicle for Mr. Toad so
3: wow. what was their initial response I mean you have this guy who comes in and he has to sound eccentric you know was <laughs> there an initial response to I want to create a theme park unlike anything that's ever been made before what was there focused on me
0: right exactly
3: yeah. 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 it's sure. me land basically
0: yeah. <laughs> This is true. You know, uh, what I have heard from both uh, Carolyn Anderson-Moyers, who was Andy Anderson's daughter, and from uh, Linda Schultz-Cooper, who was Walter Schultz's daughter, is that the relationship with Disney was very, very strong. And they both referred to it as being familial in nature. Oh, nice. And, in fact, uh, when I was talking to uh, to Linda, she had mentioned that, much of the contractual obligation that existed between Arrow and Disney in the early days was fundamentally done on a handshake.
4: Mm. Oh, wow. And,
0: and be, because of the guys, because of the kind of guys that Carl and Ed and, and Bill and Andy were, that worked really well. Uh, the only kind of conflict that ever seemed to come up would be that Walt would, would want The things that he was doing to look the way he wanted them to look, (laughs) right? right. And and there's a story about Casey Junior. that we'll probably get to later that goes into that, but definitely want to talk about that. So, um, in that regard, there were times when Walt was literally asking for something that that was violating the laws of physics (laughs) in (laughs) in terms of vehicle geometry. But because of the kinds of guys that that they were, and because Carl. And Ed were, were both really Carl and Petillo in particular was a very brilliant guy had had many many patents later in his life some and a good number of them related to Disney ride systems. They would just dig into it and figure out how to make it work and how to make it look the way that Walt wanted. And as long I think as long as that continued, as long as they were able to deliver on that, Walt just come, kept coming back and coming back and coming back, and eventually. Around 1961, he bought a third of the company.
4: Yeah, yeah.
0: So there was a, a and a for right. a significant period of time, Arrow was basically a, a partially owned subsidiary of Disney, and that, that I think that showed number one a lot of confidence in in what they'd done, but I think it also showed a, a deep awareness on Walt's part that he needed to protect these guys. Yeah, and and keep them viable, and, and that was an issue in the early days. In one. Of,
1: Go ahead. Oh, no, uh, I'm just going to jump in and and say, you know, so basically these men who who got their start, uh, you know, doing, like you say in your book, uh, metal fabrication for torpedo tubes and all the kind of stuff that the military needed during the war um, later started building rides for for enjoyment. And it's kind of... uh, I don't know karmic or uh, it, it, full circle. I don't know what it is, but it, it's very cool that these men were, were making machines to to go to war, and then you know, fifteen years later or whatever, they're redefining the amusement park uh, yes. arena. I think that's well, so fascinating.
0: Their motto was profit for pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and then the the thing that's exciting when you read the story is you can begin to see how the things that they were working on led them to where they ended up later. Although, again, I should probably point out here that in the early days, they were not financially doing very well. In fact, one of the things that I mentioned in the book, and I, I know Rob Reynolds talks about this as well, is that after the initial ride systems were complete for Disneyland, Walt was up there in map view one day and basically looked at him and said, well, boys, how did you come out on the deal? And the answer was we didn't make any money on it. Oh, <laughs> oh no! And, and much to Disney's credit, I don't know whether he pulled out his personal checkbook or not, but he made up the difference.
4: Oh that's uh, awesome.
0: wow! That's he awesome. was he was very interested in seeing them remain viable because they they continued to deliver on what he needed to achieve in order to to. Uh, have disneyland be the part that he wanted
1: it to be and let's talk about that real real fast uh dexter so in in your book you mentioned i think it was specifically with mr toad Mm -hmm. um that uh, these guys kind of just worked off a sketch right there were no prototypes they just they had a little piece of paper with a, a a sketch on it and they built whatever was on the sketch like, that yes. that's how intuitive they were. That's how great they were building things. They just they saw it, and they felt it, and they, they just kind of, um, I don't know, a, achieved the vision.
3: Almost like the ride itself was the
1: prototype. Well,
4: yeah.
0: Yes, exa- well, ex- exactly. And, in fact, that would prove to be somewhat problematic later. And we'll get to the opening day stuff, I, I think, probably in a little while. But, yeah, oh, yeah, basically they would loft things right there on the floor in the shop. and and work real-time, it was really rapid prototyping, quite frankly, what we today call rapid prototyping, where, number one, they knew that the quantity of these things they were ever going to be making was probably fairly low, Mm -hmm. and they needed to be able to to move quite nimbly as issues would come up. And issues did come up, even when they were tested in Mountain View, And, and again, that takes us back to Casey Jr. as an example. They had built... A, tra- a test track for Casey Junior. There in Mountain View, and had tested it out, and it worked just fine. But when it got down to Anaheim, as, as it you know mentions in the book, and, and they and they got it on the track uh, opening day, and. You know, Jerry Colonna was supposed to be the the engineer for it, and he took a look at it and went, I'm not getting in that thing. <laughs> um, and, and the story goes that I believe it was Carl uh, put on, uh, put on his, Jerry's clothes and got in and, and started to drive it down the track. And in his recollection, everything went fine. There's another version of the story, <laughs> though, that goes that as Casey was moving up one of the hills, the front truck started to lift off the track, oh my God. <laughs> and there was a large construction worker nearby who immediately jumped on and, and kept it down. But <laughs> if,
2: that's hilarious.
0: If, if you look at the at the actual opening day history, what you will see is that Casey actually was down for a month after the jail the, the July 7th opening huh. and they were trying to work it out and, and even to this day if you look at the original vehicle because the, the later ones were built by Pacoma uh, there's a lead bag underneath the front of the locomotive or uh, there's I'm sorry a leather bag there that has lead weights in it that are holding Casey's nose down oh that's
2: funny so because the go ahead oh um so yeah. uh in this part of the book you kind of Mentioned that there was a little bit of maybe headbutting between Walt and, and Arrow due to this. Walt really wanted it to look a certain way, but Arrow needed it to function. Yeah. Um, how was that? Like, obviously, Walt must have been pretty persistent because he got his way.
0: <laughs> well, let me let me tell you what I what I know about that, and this this comes from actually from Linda Schultz Cooper, who was Walter Schultz's daughter walter was the the, the the one of the vps later but basically what would happen is that what would come in say what he wanted all the other guys would go okay well and he would leave <laughs> and then they just have to they'd figure out how to make it work i mean it was really that they they knew who the boss was
2: so they welcomed that kind of pushing to be more creative and and to kind of invent something that worked
0: Absolutely. Cool. And Carl, Bacon, Carl Bacon, in particular, was just a, 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 a really brilliant mind. And although not formally trained as an engineer, in fact, it wasn't until Walter Schultz hired on, who had a master's in business administration from Wharton, did they really have anybody in-house that had had what you call college-level training. They were good engineers, don't get me wrong. and and But it was, again, because of that deep experience that they had developed, well in Ed's case as an auto mechanic and then in Carl's case in all of their cases when they were working at Hendy you can't be involved in making large dangerous systems I mean these these marine engines were huge Mm -hmm. and the machines that they were using to build them were were huge as well you develop a, a real gut level instinct for what does and doesn't work working in that kind of an environment and they brought all that knowledge and all that experience into doing ride systems at Aero. the the early or the early ones were fairly small for Disney. You know, I mean, you think about the simplicity of the dark ride. Think about Snow White. Yeah, I mean, that's basically a three-wheeled vehicle with an electric motor in the back, follows the track around. Not too much. It's very hard about that. But by the time you're doing the Matterhorn. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 there were some very very innovative things that were done on the Matterhorn in, in terms of being a roller coaster ride system that had never been done before. It wasn't just the tubular track; they they developed a method of monitoring and regulating the speed of the cars as they went around the track, uh, the two tracks on the mountain, which had never been done before, and uh, was a real was a real step forward in terms of roller coaster development. It, it actually turned into a point of contention between them and, and Walt Disney Imagineering later when Space Mountain was done because they wanted to do what's called a pure gravity ride mm-hmm. where you, mm-hmm. you, you haul the car up to the top and you let it go and all you've got to work with are brakes. <laughs> well, if you, <laughs> look, if, you, if you look at the way that the Matterhorn works, at various points along the track, there are what essentially look like trailer tires
3: yes. that, are, yeah. that are
0: in the middle. And those are doing two things. First off, they're giving the ride operator a sense of how fast the vehicle is moving, and it, it's going to vary with the weight of the people that are in the car. Mm-hmm. You know the old F equals M A thing. If you've got more more mass in the car, there's more force on it, so it's going to it's going to accelerate more quickly as it goes down the track. And they needed to manage that because you've got multiple cars on the track at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't want them running into one of them. You want to get their, <laughs> the spacing accurate and. Right. So they developed a way to either take the excess energy from a car that was moving faster than it wanted to be and basically move it into that rotating wheel and the motor that was associated with it to slow it down. Wow! Or if a car came by that was going a little too slow because it had three little kids in it, they would boost it up. And there were, you know, several of these located around the track. And my understanding is that there's a control room in the base of the mountain. That looks like. Uh, something in a nuclear submarine with all these dials and gauges and stuff that tells you what's going on, but they did a wonderful job of managing the speed, and so that when they came down to the bottom of the mountain, as you know, just you know, you go into the splashdown phase where the where the the water is, that essentially burns off whatever energy is left, and you can just do that over and over and over again with a great degree, degree of repeatability, mm-hmm. whereas. And using fairly small motors, whereas with a, a ride like Space Mountain, where it's a pure gravity ride, you've got to have brakes that can basically handle passenger weights between, you know, having you know four people in there that are say about seventy, say seventy-five pounds apiece, that are you know smaller riders, or the the really large riders that maybe two hundred twenty-five, two hundred fifty pounds. There's just a lot of difference in the momentum that's in the system there, and the only way that you can manage that if you don't have this kind of active speed control, is with really good brakes. Yeah,
1: (laughs) that's never thought. You know, I never guess really thought much about what goes into ride development, but uh, uh, a lot of math, which is probably why I haven't really thought about it. Um, Flipping through your book, uh, Carl Bacon said essentially uh, that much of the work at Disney had never been done before, ever. And uh, as as Terence alluded to, uh, the rides were all basically prototypes, and yes. and and we were all the the people on opening day were the beta testers. <laughs> I think is <laughs> the point you made
0: Un- unknowingly. Yes. Yeah, right. which
1: is again kind of amazing. I think the 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 trust that Walt put in these guys, and 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 the fact that they delivered. Yeah. You know, they had the five the five rides you had that was uh, the Dumbo, the King Arthur's Carousel, the Mad yeah. Tea Party, Mister Toad, and Snow White.
0: Yes. That were the early ones. Yeah. So, and, and again, part of the reason for that is that the because within Arrow there was this very, again, very familial feel in the organization, uh, even even among the, the, the founders. Uh, I think I mentioned in the book, for example, that the daughters of the uh, the Andersons and the Hardimans were, were teaching, you know, one of them was teaching the others piano. They were going to each other's weddings. Uh, Ed and Carl were very close. They would go on vacation with one another and barbecue together and this type of thing. And by the way, they also worked six days a week. <laughs>
4: oh, no. oh uh, yeah! But they were having
0: a great deal of fun doing it. And think about it. the other thing you might want to think about here is you realize, of course, that I mean Disneyland opened on July 17th of 55. They started construction basically a year earlier in July of 54. Now, Arrow didn't actually begin the work on a lot of the rides they had going until November or december wow of fifty four so and they had to you know you didn't they had to show you know they couldn't show up the day that the park was opening they had to get the ride there early right. to get it installed and get it tested out so you look at the window there i mean fundamentally they've got. December, January, February, March, April, May, maybe. Wow, that's so crazy! Six months that they've got to to, wow. to design these systems and get them proven out, and get them you know from Mountain View down to Anaheim and get them installed. Unbelievable! I mean, these days, even with SAP and all the amazing. Yeah. Management planning yeah. tools we've got for doing large engineering right. projects. I mean, if you went to somebody and said, "Here's what I want you to do. I want you to design this brand new theme park that's never been done before with a, with a half a dozen new right <laughs> that I want you to do six like, months." Most people would look at you and go, "What are you smoking, dude?" Right? right.
4: Oh, completely.
0: <laughs> but uh, but these guys said,
1: "Yeah, we're Absolutely. in. Count us Absolutely. in. We're doing it.
0: We're in." Yeah. Uh, and,
4: Go
1: ahead. No, uh, I was going uh, to kind of uh, say that, that that's a good segue into probably one of my favorite parts of the book, um, your opening day stories that you share with us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, one of my personal favorites was, was what happened on the Dumbo ride. Yes. yes. Would you mind going through that with us?
0: Sure. Of course. I'd be glad to. <laughs> uh, maybe just a little bit of background for, for those in your audience yeah. that, that don't have an engineering background, there are lots of different ways to move things. Uh, you can use, you know, to gears and that kind. Of, we all have gears you know, in our cars, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but one of the most efficient and lightest weight systems that you can use are pneumatics, yeah, and hydraulics. And we've all experienced this. I mean, like on an airplane, for example, the way the landing gear goes up and down—that's yeah. so a, that's a hydraulic system. And fundamentally, what you have is you have a piston and it's got an oil in there and as you move the piston the oil because it's a liquid it doesn't compress and that force that you're generating on the piston can be transferred to another location through a pipe or a tube and you've got a a piston at the other end and a cylinder and you can do all kinds of wonderful things with this you can multiply force you can you can amplify motion this type of thing so and if you've ever been to an automotive repair shop, you or, or worked on a car, there's things called cherry pickers that you can use to lift the engine up. Mm-hmm. And there's just there's a hydraulic ram on there, and it moves this arm. And in fact, if you look very closely at the design of the Dumbo ride, it looks an awful lot, or the mechanism of the Dumbo ride, it looks an awful lot like a cherry picker. It does. There's it does. this arm there, and it's got a hydraulic ram on it. Well, the fellow that that had done the design work on the Dumbo ride had a really great idea in terms of. of a way to reduce the amount of force and, and the size of the motors that were the hydraulic pumps that were going to be needed to run it, what he wanted to do is he wanted to have it so that the arm that the elephant was, you know, the Dumbo was on the end of this arm that's about 20 feet long, uh, he wanted to have that basically balanced so when, when Dumbo was sitting there and somebody would sit in it, there was already pressure keeping it up. In effect, they had mm-hmm. counterbalanced the weight of the, of the Dumbo vehicle.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So, so they needed a much smaller motor then to just move it up or down. The motor wasn't being tasked with the responsibility of keeping up not only the weight of the arm, but the weight of the, the ride vehicle and then the, the people that were in it. That was already in there because they wanted to have an air cylinder attached to it. These are called hydraulic accumulators. They wanted to have a pressurized gas cylinder in there that would maintain enough pressure to to kind of keep that that static balance point there. Uh And then a much smaller hydraulic motor could be used to move it up and move it down and that kind of thing. This is a great idea. Yeah, (laughs) And, in fact, it it, it is done today in, in other environments. There was a little problem, though, and what that was is that the type of hydraulic accumulator that they chose to use didn't have uh, a, a, an impermeable barrier between the oil and the air. It was what's called, called a free air accumulator. So what happens is when Dumbo developed a, a little weight problem, <laughs> 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 when 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 it was, the ride was originally specified and, and the perspective era it was building to, uh, by the time everything was all because the, the, the Dumbo elephants themselves were being done that in, in Southern California, they were about 200 pounds overweight. Wow. And by the time you got that out of the end of this long arm, what, what basically happened was they got into a condition where the hydraulic cylinders, number one, weren't sized large enough. But the other thing that happened was that the hydraulic pressure that it took to operate it had to increase. And it increased to the point that effectively, what they were doing is they were beginning to. There was, there was nitrogen gas they were using to pressurize this. The nitrogen gas began to permeate into the hydraulic fluid, and the problem there is that as the pressure then goes up and down, it, it's kind of like what happens when you pop pop a can of soda.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, all that all that carbonated gas that's in there in there in the liquid under pressure starts to come out and create bubbles.
1: Right. And that, that's bad, right?
0: <laughs> that's bad in hydraulic system. That's really bad. So this is what happens opening day. It starts up, the ride is running. People are getting on it. They're moving the dumbbells up and down. And because there's no per- there's no impermeable barrier between the nitrogen gas that's in these charge cylinders and the hydraulic fluid, the gas begins to permeate into the fluid <laughs> when you're, you're going up. And then when the person lets it go down, suddenly the pressure is released. Oh, so and the gas wants to come back out. So the hydraulic fluid starts to foam. Oh no! And there's this large reservoir in the middle, where the fluid recirculates into, and this layer of foam begins to build up on the top of this. And the next thing you know, the ride goes unstable, and it's acting very erratically, and it, it <laughs> just it doesn't work. So oh, this no. is not good. So what they did is they they sent somebody in. I, I want to say it was. Uh, Hansen, I'll have to look that one up. They, what they, they basically assign an Aero employee to stay in the <laughs> middle of the ride and scrape off the foam and pour, pour new hydraulic fluid in. While back up in Mountain View, they began to work on a new manifold system and, and one that would be able to help with the oil separation problem. Later on, <laughs> when, when the new Dumbos were designed, and if you take a look at, at any pictures that you see of the ones in Tokyo, for example, you'll notice a couple of things. First one is those cylinders that lift the arm up are much larger in diameter. They're they're, uh, they're bigger cylinders because they, they, they sized them up to handle the you know the larger the larger weight. The other thing that they did is on the later versions of Dumbo, his ears don't flap. Oh. They were they were able to they, they removed the mechanisms that caused the ears to flap and save some weight that way. Interesting. Uh, I, think, I think Dumbo's been through about three iterations now. But yeah, that's that's one of the opening day stories that um, <laughs> they were they were they called it milking the elephant and oh, no. there, wow. there there was uh, as I recall uh, they, they were down there two or three of them were down there for a full month after the park opened working on getting getting Casey tuned, getting Dumbo tuned. Um, they even had some issues with Snow White. In fact, where the ride operators um, there, there's a little shelf on the back of the car. And when they got to the end of the ride, where the passengers had, had gotten off, and they needed to move the car up to the loading station, the ride operators would stand on this on this little ledge that was back there. If you if you take a look at a picture of one, it's sort of like a bumper on the back. And unfortunately, in the beginning, if you look at the patent drawings, you can see how they how they fixed this. But in the beginning, the front of the car would raise up, <laughs> and as it did, oh. the the electrical contacts would 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 begin to to, to disconnect. And they were they were basically blowing the circuit breaker on it and causing the ride to shut down. So initially they had to teach everybody don't get on the bumper in the back but they also went back and, and did a redesign of that front the, the, the front bogey on the vehicle so that it would wrap around the rail and and hold on to it more securely and that wouldn't be as much of an issue. <laughs> so, yeah, there that and of course there are all the other stories about you know, women High-heeled shoes sinking into the asphalt, yeah. and not right. being enough water and all that. But yeah, and and actually, uh, Rob Reynolds did a, a wonderful job in his book of, of telling some of those stories. Um, I didn't really pick up very much new in that area um, when I was doing the research for the book, uh, except for later, because really they're, they're they're kind of two arrows. I don't know if you wanted to talk about this or not. We're kind of focusing on the early years, but. Arrow went through a change in ownership about three times before they they, they finally augured in, and um, in the later years, there, there are stories about aerodynamics as opposed to aero development. This is long after they had separated ways with Disney. And I know a couple of guys that, that have worked for them for quite a while. They have some really interesting stories to tell about the later years as well. But we'll we'll stick with the Disney piece because that's I, I suspect what people really want to hear about <laughs> on your show.
1: Yeah, we're, well, we'll get into to a couple non Disney rides just to you know be, because the the two things that fascinated me about your book is is one all of the the stories that led up to the opening of disneyland and and the people who actually really did these rides and all that kind of stuff and then also the impact that these five guys from you know mountain view or sunnyvale or i I forget the town um
0: yeah they uh, yeah yeah yeah, uh
1: you know they they impacted the amusement park um world you know they, they they just did a lot of stuff so uh you, you have in your book uh, an interview with Carl Bacon, and he has a quote says, "I'm thinking of all the problems we had with all those rides, especially the Mad Tea Party. That was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I still think of the problems in my head and try to fix them. In 2005, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what an what a what an analytical mind, right? What that well, that guy's wired <laughs> to fix Carl, stuff,
0: right? Well, again, they all, they all really loved what they did, and, and yeah. there are stories about the other guys as well and how committed they were to their work, but. It, yes, Carl had one of those minds that and, and I, I I never knew him personally, but just from what I've read about him and heard about him, the guy was a genius. Well, Ed, in fact, Ed referred to him as a genius and said that if he, if they hadn't been together as as partners like that, they never could have achieved what they did. But yeah, he was constant one of those one of those creative minds that's always looking for ways to improve things. always looking for ways to fix it. Although one thing that's really fascinating, I think, about Arrow. Particularly in the context of what they did today we call design thinking, yeah, is that they really weren't thinking about the people that were riding the rides as much as they were about how cool the rides were <laughs> and the neat stuff that they could do. So in that regard, they came from a generation where the technology in and of itself was 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 immensely admired and And as you said, Aero went on to be one of the probably the largest and most successful manufacturer of uh, of ride systems in the world at, at one point they had roller coasters and and flumes and uh dark rides i mean at over 200 locations around the world wow uh, there's a there's a document that i that i mentioned in the book that was was published in 1979 that's several pages long which is it was their list if you will of everything that they had done and it's remarkable when you go out go down it to see where all these rides were. I mean, you've got Bush Gardens in Tampa, Florida. You've got the, the teacup ride at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, the ride systems at, at all the Marriott's. What were the Marriott's in those days on I mean, the old Chicago? Nara Dreamland in Japan. <laughs> uh, T- Toshima in Japan. Blackpool Pleasure Beach in Blackpool. In fact, the Blackpool thing was a real surprise to me. Complete Alice in Wonderland ride, dark ride. Just like, not exactly like, but I mean, the same basic thing that you've got in Disneyland in England. <laughs> oh, wow. Others, you know, and and I, there was, when I was doing the research, I'm going, wow, I wonder how the intellectual property thing <laughs> works on that. <laughs> yeah. because, I mean, 1951, you know, Alice had been going in Anaheim for a while. My, my, the only thing I can think is that it, Walt must have thought, look, it's far enough away, there's no way that right. it's going to have any impact on our business. But even now, you you can go on YouTube and look for this. You can see a point of view video of the Alice in Wonderland ride. that's still operating at Blackpool, and compare that, of course, with the point of view videos that are available for Alice, even the new Alice, you know, in Anaheim.
4: Yeah.
0: And there's surprising similarities there. It's fascinating stuff. So they had, yeah, they had ride systems all over the world. They had ride systems all over the country. And, in fact, when, when C.V. Wood left Disney and, and went out on his own to start his own park in the Freedom Land, Arrow did rights for them. Wow. So, very, uh, again, I, I haven't they were found everywhere. enough found enough information to really to really sort out, like I said, how it is that they had permission from Walt to do <laughs> that, because I would have thought that Walt was going in no way. Well, and In fact, I will tell you a, a little story that's not in the book that, that. um uh, Linda Schultz Cooper related to me just recently. She she worked for Disney for a number of years and remembers a meeting that they had in 1972. Now this is obviously long after Disney's death. It's also after Arrow had basically been told, "Look, we've got central shops in Orlando now. We want to start doing the right systems in house." It's been a fun ride with you guys, and we couldn't have done it without you. But we're moving on. Shortly after which. The business was sold. Arrow was sold to Rio Grande Industries. But Linda remembers having gone to a meeting at the Anaheim Convention Center that was an all hands meeting to basically talk about what Disney was going to be doing going forward. And to her, it was it was very clear by that time that the relationship that had existed between Walt and Ed and Carl and Walter Schultz, her father, basically after Walt died, that that started to to degenerate uh, mm-hmm. I, I, maybe I shouldn't use that word but there was a lot of relationship per, there was a lot of personal relationship in the relationships between the companies, yeah. and I think I think once Walt died and uh, and things began to, to come on, unglued that way, Disney began to look at other vendors to, for doing their right systems. they wanted to do them their, their, their own in-house. Uh, the handwriting was on the wall
2: um so you kind of allude a little bit to that in the book i think that sort of at the end of the day the disney corporation used Arrow's skills and the the their talent but didn't give them a ton of credit (laughs) (laughs) is that is that part of what maybe left a little bit of a weird taste in in their mouth and kind of caused this sort of separation
0: no, I don't think oh. so. In fact, when you when – uh, but thank you for asking that question, and let me try to answer that in a little bit of depth. The, the relationship that existed, I think, between Arrow and Disney was very complimentary. And the truth is, Walt and Car, uh, Carl Carl, Bacon and Ed – yeah, Carl and Ed – they really didn't want to be in the spotlight. They didn't care about being in the spotlight. They wanted to build these cool rides. And Walt, of course, was very concerned about preserving the, the, the quality and the integrity of the Disney brand name. He had reached a point in his career, I mean, gosh, after 40 years of trying, where he finally was getting some traction, and the, the high quality of the product was extremely important to him, and he realized that, in effect, he had stopped being a person, and the Disney name had stopped representing a person, and it started representing this entity. Mm-hmm. And this thing that was Disneyland, and he was deeply committed to an extremely high standard of perfection in everything that he did. And for a very long time, even the names of the Imagineers—so it wasn't just forgive me—the name even the names of the guys that were the Imagineers and the cartoonists and all that was pretty much kept you know under wraps because it was all just within the construct of this identity of Disney. Yeah. Uh. And it wasn't okay. really until late, years later, probably probably Eisner began to kind of raise the curtain a little bit. Mm-hmm. And some of the books began to be published, about even about Walt Disney Imagineering, because those guys have been behind a curtain for a very long time as well, and still are. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. So um, I don't think there was any animus over that. Uh, I think what really had happened was that, Again, I think with Walt's passing and, and the breakdown in that relationship as a result. Uh, and Disney's need to really start to expand. I mean, they had a huge project on their hands in Orlando. Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. It was,
0: it was, it was probably much, and it, well, and it, it was clearly much bigger. In fact, let me back up for just a second because I don't know, I think, Jason, you had asked a little bit about Disney using other vendors.
1: Yes. Yes, sir.
0: And, and Walt, Walt, I think, was very smart in this regard. If you think about the history of Disney, you know, they started out in, in cartooning, in, in print animation kind of stuff, and they got into movies. And, and by the 50s, I mean, they had earned their chops. They had some, some great successes in theaters, and they understood how to make films. They understood how to tell stories. They understood how to stage things. And that's really what they brought to Disneyland: is they knew how to create this amazing stage where these stories could play out. They weren't really deep as engineers, but so what Walt did is he began to bring people on board that had that background. You know, Joe Fowler had been a navy man for for many many years and built battleships. I mean, the guy really understood the water and things that floated on it. He was brought on board and given the responsibility to manage the construction of the riverboat crews and the the Columbia, the Mark Twain, although they used Todd Shipyards. Todd Shipyards did the hull and stern wheel for the Mark Twain. They did the gates to the graving dock right there next door, you know, where the ships are serviced. They did Mm -hmm. the masts and the rigging for the pirate ship. I think that was the chicken of the sea. Uh, the Columbia. They also built the the 100 ton diesel electric submarines that are on the submarine ride. So, Todd Shipyards knew how to build ships. Yeah. And Disney used them to to do that stuff uh, on the Autopia ride. Your Hartman Engineering in Montrose did the chassis and the drive trains. Glasspar in Costa Mesa did the car bodies, and then all that was brought together and assembled, tested by Manco Engineering there in Newport Beach. So. I think Walt realized that he didn't have the staff in-house to do the engineering piece really well. And he went and he found people that could help him do that. Uh, the aerial tramway, you know, the one that goes to the Matterhorn? Uh-huh. That was done by Von Roll. Uh, They're out of Bern, Switzerland. And actually, the model that they bought was, was 10 years old. It was a 1947 model that was installed in Disneyland in, you know, 55. No, I'm sorry, when, when the Matterhorn was put up, it was 60. What, 61. Hmm. So. Um, I think Walt understood that he didn't do everything well. he didn't need personally to do everything well. What he needed to do was hire people who knew how to do things well sure and I think they've 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 used that to the very much to their advantage over the years. Some of the stuff was 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 definitely in house and you know there are many books out there that that talk about the the amazing, wonderful things that you know, Roger Brogey and some of the other Imagineers did. You know, the nine old men, of course, were animators. Mm-hmm. But I, I really feel like Walt, Walt was very smart in this regard, and even today. Disney does not do everything in-house. They subcontract um, some of the work that they do. But in the end, the core concept that the ride is about, and certainly the, the, the staging that it's in, the environment that it's in, it's all disney they're they're in effect they're the conductor of this amazing orchestra of these remarkably talented companies and individuals that are turning out these incredible systems I mean, my gosh the, the the motion simulation system on star tours when it was designed was better than anything nasa had
2: <laughs> wow that's
0: so, incredible t- really top drawer engineering and, and you think about it what happens when you go to Disneyland is all of that magic that goes on, and this, this is why it's magic, all that stuff that goes on behind the scenes is pretty much invisible to you.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. It, it's just, it's there in the fabric, and it's a part of the immersive experience. Now, there are a couple. Some, another couple of exceptions with regard to this. I mean, I don't know if you realize, for example, that Walt personally owned the monorail and Walt Disney Railroad. He had a company that he had set up in 1953 called RETLAW, which is Walt spelled backwards, huh. <laughs> that owned the, those transportation systems and the, and the horse carts that ran up and down Main Street, by the way. And But huh. see, Walt had experience with that. He had built that, that wonderful locomotive that for the you know Railway that he had at his house out in the Holmby Hills. I don't know if you know that story, but yeah. mm-hmm. Walt had firsthand experience with steam locomotives. So that's sort of kept that even closer to home than than Walt Disney Imagineering, which which was actually a spin off. I mean if you go back to the very beginning, there's there's Law, but that was Walt Disney Inc. first. And then later on it becomes WDI, which is now okay. the Imagineering Guys. Yeah. So Okay. And that was gosh, it was that was I think the family actually owned Rent Law until Oh on I mean, like 1988 or something like that. It was a long period, long period of time where these two independent, these two separate but very deeply related, of course, entities were there involved in in the operation and running of the park. And Walt was really smart though because he was using the fund, the money that was flowing from operational stuff from Rathbaugh to fund new <laughs> development that he wanted to work on, mm-hmm. and in that way, maintain some independence from the park operation guys because. You, you got to wear a different hat if you're an R and D guy versus an ops guy, and that's perfectly understandable. There's nothing wrong with it, but he he wanted to have a way to continue to fund these amazing things he wanted to do, and so that was one of the mechanisms was he it. had in place to make that happen. Oh. yeah,
1: interesting. Uh, if, if we can just do a little meta Disney here, real fast, um, because specifically because you you brought up the fact of of, of uh, Walt kind of going out of of the house to get stuff done, um, uh, well. First, okay, they they had uh, Arrow, and then they kind of brought it in house, and they decided to do everything. But but recently, they're they're they seem like they're uh, outsourcing again. Uh, guys like Garner Holt, who are doing uh, some animatronics and, and things like that. Uh, recently, we yeah. heard we heard a story that uh, the Carthay was an experiment to have an outside firm do all the design and build of an attraction, uh, sort of like a turnkey uh, turnkey thing turnkey uh building uh you know imagineer was imagineering was buying off on on things along the way but they didn't do any of the design or the build work so i I don't know if you can kind of uh, i don't know what does that mean for for the future of disney are they gonna are they gonna get back to people like Arrow and and kind of just buy into these little companies rather than keeping people on staff all the time which many times they're kind of just sitting idle because there's not a big project to work on
0: well, number one, I have to I have to be very careful what I do and don't say it here because I I do know folks that are on the inside. Okay. And um, I have also been behind the curtain uh, at least once myself. Oh. So, um, but here's what I let me put my MBA hat on. Here there we go. I'll take the engineer hat off. Put the MBA.
1: Please do. As long as it has ears on it, it's okay.
0: It does. It absolutely does. Good. Disney Disney has grown into a, an amazingly large corporation, and they have operations going on all over the world. They've got multiple theme parks that they're managing. They've got the movie, movie business that they're managing. They've got the, the cruise line thing. You've got all the all the merchandise that are the spinoffs from the movies and that type of thing. I mean, it is just it's beyond, I think, probably Walt's Wildest dreams. Maybe, in some ways, beyond his wildest nightmares, but the
4: <laughs>
0: i would I would submit that when you get to a certain stage in in the size of your your company in order to stay nimble you you have to be flexible you have to be able to bring resources on and let them off as 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 demand requires without burdening your overhead to the point that you really do begin to have this problem. That I'm sorry, I can't remember which one of you referred to. Of, you know, sort of people sitting around idle. Uh, I don't think there's been a time in, in very in, in a long time where anybody at Disney was sitting around. idle. Well, that's idle.
1: true. Yeah, that that was me uh, at, exaggerating. I'm sure you
0: look at what they've got going on right now, and, and we're all looking forward with great anticipation to, to what's coming in Shanghai. Uh, it's going to yes. be really cool, by the way. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I think. I I think that they're doing a very effective job of leveraging their capabilities, and I think I think they're really running at the at the at the end of their leash right now. They've got stop and think about this in in a slightly different context. Being an imagineer is is a, is a, a remarkable set of you've got to have a remarkable set of skills to be an imagineer, and there's a, there's a a degree of flexibility and thinking and creativity that, 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 that because the expectations are so amazingly high uh, you get you, you really can't have B team players or C team players you know, working in those roles but by the time you're you've got a park in Orlando a park in Anaheim a park in Paris Hong Kong Japan yeah, you know and now of course in Shanghai that is a lot of stuff to manage yeah. and yeah. finding the people that you need that are qualified to, to do that I'm sure it can be extremely challenging so like any company and I worked at Apple for 10 years um, like any company that's being successful in their market there are times that what you do is you look at what you're doing and you say you know what this piece over here is not really core to our business for example mm. when I was at Apple I, I worked in the group that did peripherals we did not build the monitors. Hmm. We, we we designed them to the degree that we would go and find a vendor, which it originally was Sony, that had a display that gave us the performance that we needed. And we said, now you need to make this look like an Apple product, and this is what that's <laughs> supposed to look like. We had our industrial designers in-house, and then we had design engineers that would work with the engineers, in, in that case, at Sony, to make it look like an Apple product. But we didn't do the CRT. We we didn't do the uh, the electronics unless we thought we could figure out a way to do it for less money. Because here's the thing you run into when you're buying something from somebody else, you're paying their overhead. Yeah, mm. that's definitely yeah. true. Uh, right. And yeah, you know, there's this markup in there, and you, this is where the bean counters get into the room and the MBAs get in the room. And you <laughs> have to take a look at the numbers really hard and say, okay, in this case, does it make sense for us? to pay somebody else to do this for us because, number one, it's not a core technology to us. It isn't something that's a sustainable differentiator in the marketplace. We don't need to be protecting this. And, by the way, this is where I think Arrow got into trouble later on. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to find the best that we can out there. And, in fact, Apple still does this. They're not making their own flat panel displays for the iPhone. They get those from somebody else.
4: Yeah, right. yeah that's they, true.
0: And and Apple did this with regard to the CPUs. The Macintosh desktops were built by Apple. They were designed by Apple, built by Apple in an Apple factory. The injection molded parts, all the sheet metal, those things were farmed out. I mean, we had vendors that would make those for us. We assembled that stuff in-house. In effect, Disney does the same thing. They will do things in-house. That they're really good at, yeah, right. And the stuff that they, the stuff they can get somebody else to do for them, mm-hmm. they will pay them to do that. Now there are challenges with that because you got to find vendors that are going to show up, <laughs> meet your schedule, meet your cost, and and you know there's stories there about negotiations you know between Disney and outside vendors and and the mouse being the gorilla in the room, yeah. But when you're trying to maintain that high level of quality. Uh, you really can't afford to do it any other way. Okay. So in in that regard, uh, it doesn't bother me at all, for example, that Vacoma was used to do Casey Jr. at at Euro Disney. Hmm. I mean, if if Arrow was still around, they could have done it. And in the same way that the uh, the Big Thunder in Anaheim was not done by Arrow, but Arrow did Big Thunder in Orlando. Mm Mm-hmm. So there does come a point where you have to start paying attention to the business side of the equation. Sometimes you guess right. Sometimes you guess wrong. <laughs> but I think when you look at Disney's growth over the years, and in and more particularly what they just pulled off in terms of the whole integration of Pixar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not sure if you, if, you, if you guys noticed this, but the last two films that came out, if you – I almost feel like that the Disney animation guys are sending messages in the cartoon shorts that they do before the main feature. Yes. <laughs> if you think about the last one that came out, you know, get a horse.
1: I never saw it. I'm ashamed oh, you, to say oh, it.
0: Oh my gosh! You have, have you, uh, if, uh, Terrence or Terrence, have you seen that yet? Um, it, it, it's the it's the opener for Frozen, as I recall. I, I have seen it. Yes. Okay. So. And I, I don't want to be a spoiler on this, but if you if, if you if you go and watch that cartoon, I, the message that I get from that is okay. Disney animation is back, and mm. if we're not doing this Pixar versus Disney thing anymore. We're all in house, and we're we're going to demonstrate this for you now in this cartoon. It's, it's
3: because. Funny. Cool. It's actually funny you say that, because I have a really close friend who's an animator at Pixar, and he said the same thing. Oh, really? He said it, it okay. felt like it was kind of a slap to, a slap in the face to Pixar. Really? It, well, yeah.
0: I, don't, no, I wouldn't call it a slap in the face to Pixar. What I, what I would say is that we've buried the hatchet. The argument is over. We are Disney. And just to prove it to you, we're going to start off with what looks what's going to look like a, a 1928 animated classic. And bring you up into the point that, uh, well, for those of you that have not seen it too bad, I'm going to spoil it for yeah, you. Yeah, right. do it. Um, that when the characters begin to break through the screen and come out of the front of the screen or in 3D and then go back behind the screen or back in 2D, black and white, back and forth and in and out and up and down, and I, I was just I, when I first saw it, I was, was black jawed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but it all also also it almost wanted I almost wanted to cry because. I'm going. Oh my gosh, the the fighting is over. The arguing is over. And I'm, I remember going through this sort of thing when I was at Apple. Frankly, because I was there when, pretty much, when Steve wasn't. He was leaving as I came on board, and came back as I was as I was leaving. And I, I still remember the angst and the nail biting and tear tearing and all that that went on with that whole transition, mm-hmm. and the question about you know where's Apple going to be? And of course, they bounced back. And I look at what happened at Disney, and in a lot of respects, I feel like they have finally bounced back from losing Walt. And I think that was a question that a lot of people had for a long time. I'm not saying that I feel like they're completely over it, but I love the direction they're going in. (laughs) I'm excited about the way that they're taking, if you will, the properties that they have. And I admit there are days that I scratch my head a little bit and go, "Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> okay, we, we just bought Marvel. We, uh, what are we yeah. going to be doing with that? <laughs> right. know, am, I, am I expecting a, a Thor ride at, at Disneyland now or not? i And I'm not obviously I'm not on the other side of the curtain. I don't know the answers to those questions. But what I I do feel very deeply is that Walt left a deep and lasting impression on that company that is reflected in the hearts and minds of the people that go to the parks that see the movies I mean, we can, we all maybe we all remember the years that were not so good but when i think about what they just accomplished think of the last three films that came out look at frozen look at maleficent my gosh what an amazing story and and some might argue that yeah well you know what's the big idea there i mean they did a kind of a plot inversion thing with wicked before you know, not Disney, but the, the, the idea of doing that kind of a plot inversion where we're going to turn the characters inside out, good yeah. becomes bad, bad becomes good. Right. But you look at what Disney has done, in my humble opinion, okay? <laughs> you look at what Disney has done with Once Upon a Time, you look at what they're doing with, as I said, Maleficent. What an amazing story. And and turning, turning that whole thing on its head... And opening up a much wider range of emotional content and meaning in the story, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, complained for a long time that Walt was sort of myopic. That he, you know, he would take somebody's story. You know, the Grimm's fairy tales were pretty grim, right? Yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah,
0: And that's probably why they called them that. <laughs> and and he would he would come along and turn them into something that some people thought was maybe a little saccharine, even, and and, and kind sure. of inauthentic. But I've got to refer back to that there's this one scene in, in Saving Mr. Banks, which has also received criticism from some cynics, where um, in a what I think is probably an imaginary event, I, I don't think Walt actually went and visited P.L. Travers in London, but he's telling <laughs> her the story of, uh, of, the, of the hardness of his youth. And if you haven't read Diane Disney Miller's uh, biography of her father, um, I, I would recommend it to you. Okay. Because the, the, I really believe at a deep, deep level that Walt was a, a genuinely good person who wanted the best mm-hmm. and also deliberately chose to focus on the bright side. And, and this is where I, I drag it back around to something which is kind of a rage these days in in, in the business community, which is called design thinking. Because design thinking, the first rule of design thinking is you start with empathy for the customer, and you're optimistic. In fact, as I have gone and and looked at the core principles of design thinking, which actually I was taught years ago when I was at Stanford, and the core principles that I've uncovered in studying the way Walt Disney Imagineering works, I see an extremely strong parallel there. I mean, on every major point, the optimism, the storytelling, the attention to detail, focus on the needs of the customer, going out and, and rapidly prototyping and getting getting feedback and getting getting your head wrapped around the deep emotional needs of your users and and addressing those it's there it's there on both sides it's what Imagineering was supposed to be about it's what Walt said it was about it's what design thinking is about and I don't think it's coincidental uh, because underneath it all I believe there's some core principles that that come together into what we would define as, as real genuine sustainable creativity and being able to put things into the market that resonate with people, uh, and uh, I, I mean, I think Disney's got got their mojo on that. I uh, I cry at Disney movies, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and and I'm not embarrassed about it. And you it Doesn't it doesn't bother me that right. Walt wanted to look at the world through a more positive lens? I mean, gosh, we've all got a choice when we get out of bed in the morning about what, what kind of a trail we want to leave through the day. Mm-hmm. That's true, and the world is a much better place, I think, for those people. The efforts of those people that are choosing to look at things on the on the optimistic side, uh, and, and they could even poke fun at that a little bit. I mean, we, even these days, we talk about having a Pollyanna kind of an attitude. <clears throat> but I really believe that his his lasting impact on the world is in part due to that frame of mind that he carried and his willingness to stick to his gun. With regard to that, this, this simple you know, Missouri farm boy, if you will, that, that grew up and, and paid some high prices in the early years and learned some very hard lessons when other people took advantage of him, and still came out the other end and said, no, I do not want to succumb to the criticism and the negativity. I want to put good things out there, and I believe that if I do, people will flow to it, and I, I think the evidence shows that he was absolutely right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think you can look at a, a man like Disney or, or, or the legacy he's left behind and, and think anything anything else, you know, and, and really believe it, you yeah. know. Uh, one last thing, Dexter, before before we let you go, um, sure. uh, one of the, the more exciting parts in the book for me, personally, um, you were talking about the uh, six operating carousels that aero design that are still in California. Yes, one of them <clears throat> is Pixie Playland, right here in Concord, California. That's right.
0: Isn't that isn't that remarkable? That's I, so funny.
1: I drive by that place maybe three times a week. Yeah, it's like right by my house. That's incredible. Yeah, like, that's us. Yeah, we're we're famous. We're in a book. Yeah, But, but it's also like, well, have you gone and written it yet? Not yet. No, yeah. because I I don't have anyone with kids small enough, and I would just look sure. weird. Take my my kids. I'm please. six five two twenty two. <laughs>
4: uh,
1: you know, one please. Um, but it was it it it's kind of uh it's kind of a um, uh, a Disneyland tie in. You know, totally. so so now Absolutely. after reading that, um, I, there's a little there's a little Anaheim connection, there's a little Walt Disney uh, connection there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for me, every time I pass it, and so I, it, I interestingly, it really cool. and,
0: interestingly enough, that's not the, the only relic of of Arrow that's there in the Bay Area. Um, if you've been down to uh, Yusegi Farm, Farms Pumpkin Patch, the oh. the train the train they have down there, the F9 Streamliner. Is an Aero right boat, yeah. locomotive and beautifully restored, amazingly restored.
1: We need to go down that's um, Morgan Hill, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, there in the book, there's this one chapter that I've got where I, I basically talk about that. And there was also on the blog on my blog post, the uh, aerodevelopment.blogspot.com, there, there was a page on there that was basically it's a, it's a list of all the known Aero ride systems that are out there, yeah, and a lot of them are there in the Bay Area. Uh, of course, later on, uh, the the flume, the vlogger's revenge at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, mm-hmm. Yep. is an arrow ride. Um, some of them aren't there anymore. I mean, Playland at the beach is gone. Yeah, so the arrow rides that were there, you know, are gone. And actually, just just today, and I'll, I'll put a little a little plug in on this if you don't mind. Too much. No, please do. Just today, uh, I got a, uh, an email about a. Uh, uh, you, you remember Midget Autopia? Yes. Okay. Well, we're we're, we're, all, we're sort of all, all keeping our antenna up with regard to what uh, what ride systems are still out there, and and Werner Weiss, Who has that that remarkable Yesterland site? Oh, right. yeah. yeah. Um, That's
4: amazing. I was just
0: uh, he contacted me last week because he had gotten a message from one of his followers who said he sent him a photograph of this this young this young boy in what looked to be a Midget Autopia car, in a theme park that was back in the Midwest.
4: Huh. Oh, and, wow.
0: and 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 so the question was, well, wait a second. I mean, Midget Autopia, that was in, the you know, we had that 10 cars. They were there in Disneyland. It was taken to Marceline, Missouri. Yeah. Because Walt did A2 and And we know where all 10 of the cars are. So what is this? This midget Autopia car, doing it in this photograph from the the the, the mid '80s, or actually it's more like the '90s, at, at old Indiana fun park, and Werner drilled down into that and discovered, actually, uh, I have to prove this out, but Aero Development did the ride vehicles for midget Autopia, but they also sold them to a, a, bunch, a bunch of other places. There were at least five or six huh. in, by the late '50s that they were out there. So just just this week, in fact, is on on Warner's blog tonight, they're they're lifting the curtain on this. He has he has this uh, this new posting called the Midget Autopia Mystery, which uh, is the discovery of yet another now sixty year old aero ride system, which is still out there and operational. That's I mean these, awesome. these guys knew how to build stuff that lasted. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, they're they're getting a lot of you know care and support from their now loving owners. Sure. But um, they, uh, I I don't feel at all uncomfortable in saying they don't make them like this anymore <laughs> No they don't,
1: absolutely so, don't
0: The level of simplicity and durability that they put into those rides And, and the level of sophistication Even today, with the remarkable capabilities we had in computer-aided design And simulation and that type of thing um, These guys, just they really had it nailed They knew how to do it Simply, they knew how to do it quickly and effectively without a lot of documentation and overhead. In fact, one of the complaints I think that that, that uh, Ron Toomer had in the in the later years was that after they started to use a lot of CAD tools, it really didn't make what they were doing happen any faster. Because these new these new young guys, rather than than doing calculations on what the forces were going to be every 15 feet on the track, yeah. They just did it every inch. Uh. <laughs> and and so it still, you still push the you know, the button on the keyboard at the end of the day and went home hoping it didn't crash overnight and you were going to come and there was going to be all this data. <laughs> Not that you really understood any better how to do the ride, right. but gosh, you had all this data <laughs> to prove that you did it right. <laughs> but it, it didn't really make things happen much faster. Carl and Ed understood things at a very visceral level and were able to, to engineer these things I mean, gosh, think about it. With slide rules, of course, right. you know we put it, we put a man on the moon with slide yeah, rolls, absolutely, and so they worked pretty good. Slide rules there, and
1: tubes, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was there was a point where we didn't have to have this unbelievably thin slicing of everything. Um, now later on, as like in air, in aerodynamics cases, the roller coasters got bigger and higher and faster. They really began to push the corners of the envelope farther than the materials were going to let them go at the time. And began to have some issues with that, and there were, you know, it came up with, you know, cracks in the in the in the in the tracks and stuff like that. And I mean, you can find these things in the paper if you go look for them. So I'm not really revealing anything new there. But you know, it isn't always the case that that having a, 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 a supercomputer on your desk makes you into a better designer or a better engineer. Right. It, 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 hopefully it will help you find your mistakes faster by going through simulations first, but all you have to do is, is look at what was really the, the remarkable simplicity and at the same time elegance of the rides that were being done there at disney years ahead of when anybody else did it yeah and you still have to be impressed I mean the matterhorn is still really cool <laughs> <Yeah>. even <laughs> though it's as old as it is yeah and uh, i know some people complain about the way the new cars feel and that type of thing but um... these days of course these days the whole roller coaster community has gone off in a whole different direction with uh, so we're five generations past that now. You've got rides yeah. now that are rotating you on multiple axes and all this kind of stuff. and. Uh, one wonders if they just haven't reached the point where we're we're just up against the envelope of what human physiology can handle
1: <laughs> I think so. I, <laughs> I think next time we're we're going to buy a uh, maybe a ticket at Magic Mountain and then we're going to go into orbit.
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, that's
1: pretty much just what it's going to be. Uh, I think there are a couple
0: guys out there working on that already. <laughs>
1: yeah, for sure. Uh, Dexter, man, I I, I want to thank you very much for spending this time with us. Absolutely. Uh, uh, would you mind coming back for a later show?
0: I'd be delighted there's to. And so I've, I've enjoyed this immensely. it a lot of fun.
1: Good. I'm so glad, man. There's so much that we... I have half an outline untouched mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because there's so much information. Um, And and it's fascinating to me, and I hope it's fascinating to everybody else. So please, uh, everyone out there in podcast land, uh, head on over to aerodevelopment.blogspot.com. You can check out all of Dexter's writings there. You can go to iTunes and pick up his book, Building Disney's Dream. I highly recommend it. There's some cool uh, pictures. I I love old men. There's some cool old men pictures in there, and uh, uh, Carl Bacon is my favorite old man. He has a little little news newsboy hat yeah. on. Oh yeah. he, just, he just looks like a guy who's seen it all and yeah. just enjoyed every second of it. Mm-hmm. It's it, it was super amazing. Uh, anyway, Dexter, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. And, and by the way, on the, on the on the note of the book, the is story, the story of writing the book isn't even over. I mean, as I continue to find new information. This is the wonderful thing about an e-book is that it's very easy to update. (laughs) So as as time goes along and I I begin to wrap some of this stuff in, there will be new editions coming out. I'm also working with the folks at Theme Park Review about putting together a print edition, which hopefully will be out between now and the end of the year. Oh, great. So uh, I love telling the story, and I love that people who have gotten so much from the work of these men are getting to learn the story yes and uh as i said it's it's 40 i mean how do you encapsulate 40 years it's, it's not easy uh, <laughs> you, not easy you, you did so. a good
1: job i think uh well, i, I really thank enjoy you. it
0: thank you for inviting me to be on the show it's been a real pleasure being with you i, I look forward to doing it again in the future
4: yeah uh, yeah thank
1: you. for sure thanks dexter all
0: right take I care mean.
1: good, good night good
4: night
1: wow that
2: was a lot we, of really good information
3: we barely even scratched the surface that's crazy oh, totally. literally i have half of our our show notes yeah
1: still untouched yeah. Uh, yeah because i mean look these guys at arrow and and i won't beat a dead horse because you know we're already almost an hour and a half <laughs> into the show um in 1949 you could buy a 20 foot Arrow carousel for five thousand dollars yeah it's <laughs> crazy five thousand dollars uh, but I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about how you know what it was like to take that that carousel from Toronto and expand yeah, on yeah, it. I wanted yeah. to talk about um, uh, the uh, Mad Tea Party and the teacup thing. I mm-hmm. mean, because these these men had children, obviously, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the the kids was like, I pretty sure I was the first kid to ever <laughs> ride the teacups. I was the test. Right. I went on that thing over and over again. It's crazy. And, um, one of my, (laughs)
2: one
1: one of my favorite, uh, uh, Carl Bacon quotes and I'll paraphrase it was like, I like to see how fast I could get things to go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You, how do you not? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and that's the vision that kind of pushes along, but I'll run through it real fast. And when we have Dexter on, uh, you know, whenever we can, we can pin him down again, uh, we'll talk about some of this on the, over the next 20 years of the opening day, uh, they used Arrow on like 12 or 15 rides. Yeah. Casey Jr., Midget Autopia, Motorboat Cruise, Alice, Matterhorn, Flying Saucer, Small World, Space Mountain, Adventure Through Inner Space, Pirates. They basically redesigned and reinvigorated the flume. The ride, yeah. And so I want to talk to him about the flume yeah, ride. there's and so all much all more to discuss. Kind of we could spend an entire <laughs> show talking about the flying saucers. I mean, oh, for yeah. yeah. sure. I mean, so Carl Bacon, he had 12 patents. Most of, them, most of them for when he was in Disney. Self-trained engineer. That's he incredible. didn't go to school. That's crazy. And he also
2: didn't have a computer.
1: No. Yeah. Slide rules, dude. Slide rules and <laughs> yeah, tubes.
2: That part is incredible. In this, just knowing this generation to do all of that without a computer.
3: Oh, my God. I, can you I know imagine? it probably isn't possible to do this, but if we had him on, it'd be great to have a live show. And have people be able to call in oh, or, sure. or do something we're, on a we're, chat or
1: something? We're getting close to having that ability. Okay, so I will okay. only say that uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the Omnimover system they yeah. developed. Yeah. the Om- Omnimover, which is still in use. Obviously, yeah. you know the, the Mansion Omnimover, where the the cars just keep moving. But yeah. it's just it's just solid tech that works. Mm-hmm. Um, what did I have here? Oh, uh, a couple famous aero rides that you may not know that were famous aero rides. Uh, at Knott's Berry Farm in 1975, they did, uh, debuted the Corkscrew,
4: mm-hmm.
1: which was the first multiple inversion looping roller coaster.
2: Multiple. Kind of cool. Pretty easy. So that's yeah. like a loop.
1: Yes. Yeah. You go upside down, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Six Flags Runaway Mine Train, both the first mine train roller coaster, which they kind of uh, say, at least well, Dexter says, uh, aero are kind of... Um, uh, given the honors of developing the Runaway Mine Train. Mm-hmm. Big so Thunder, like Thunder Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. Exactly yes. right. Um, so Six Flags was the first one of that and the first coaster with an underwater tunnel. That's crazy. That
2: sounds really right? scary. <laughs> also
1: the first million dollar coaster outside of Disneyland. It's just all sorts of fun stuff. But one thing I wanted to get to before we split, um, uh, one of the more unusual items, Dexter says in his book, uh, Aero developed was an automatic hot dog cooker. <laughs> 7 Elevens yeah. around the
2: world. Thank
1: them. <laughs> right. For something called Glamour Dogs. Uh, and here's a recipe. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this is probably, judging by the photo, late 60s, early 70s, when everyone loved Hot dogs. weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you get half a cup of Fritos corn chips, crushed <laughs> before measuring. So you measure well, the. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> one cup of grated American cheese. Half a cup of medium onion, chopped. One uh, teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce, four tablespoons tablespoons of tomato sauce or puree, ten frankfurters, not even just hot dogs, the frankfurters. (laughs) Mix together Fritos, corn, chips, grated cheese, onion, Worcestershire, and tomato sauce or puree. Split the frankfurters lengthwise and fill with the above mixture. Bake at (laughs) 350 degrees until thoroughly heated. It's just a weird. Guess
2: what we're having for the next show?
3: (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like something
2: I would want to make.
3: Oh, Lord. (laughs) To
2: watch you both eat it. No. I mean, it doesn't sound bad. Nothing in there is bad. No,
1: it doesn't. (laughs) It sounds very 70s. Yeah. Very late 60s. Uh, Let's get the fact of the show out of the way and get out of here, huh?
2: Yeah. Getting
1: tired. Uh, many uh, speaking of Big Thunder Mountain, many of the artifacts found in and around Big Thunder are authentic artifacts, uh, and, uh, authentic mining stuff and whatever. And they include a century-old stamp mill, hand-driven drill press, gears, picks, shovels, and other objects that were found in abandoned mines in Nevada, Colorado, Minnesota, and Wyoming, as well as museums and swap meets. But nice. there you go, all original stuff.
3: I'm not That's surprised.
1: Cool. <laughs> yeah. In lieu of our. Uh, in lieu of our uh, our normal exit song, uh, I do want to play uh, th- the, uh, come on, here we go, where am we're talking about, the Friend Like Me yeah. song, the Aladdin Aww. Genie song, because I would be remiss in my duties as a podcast host to, uh, especially a Disney one, to not mention the passing of Robin Williams, and uh, who of course was the genie in the, in, in, in the Aladdin, the first and the third, but not the 2nd mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, great man, great talent. Yeah, and uh, even though the, the song is kind of terrible,
2: no, it's great.
1: It's terrible. Run
2: like um, me.
3: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. What was that?
2: No, uh, you get it once. I oh. wish you could have
3: seen her jazz hands. Oh, <laughs> I sort of did. There were jazz hands. I see them all there the time.
2: There has to be. The whole song has jazz hands.
1: It's true. Uh, anyway, I just want to. I just want to uh, play this song and uh, and uh, I don't know, man. It's uh, It was very sad. Poor guy. He had a lot going on. Uh, apparently he had Parkinson's, on, yeah. early onset Parkinson's yeah. and depression. And, you know, if you're sad out there, man, call someone. There's always someone who loves you out there. So uh, anyway, until next time, everyone, keep your ears up.
2: You got a brand of magic, never fails. You got some power in your corner now. It's heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch, the you and all you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Alonzo, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. <laughs> Life is your restaurant, and I'm your mega D. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah. Say what you wish, it's yours, true dish. About a little more Bagley As I'm a column A, try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. Oh my! No, no! My, my. Can your friends do this? Can your friends do that? Can your friends pull this? Out their little hand. Can your friends go? Hey, looky here! Friends, go Abracadabra, let it rip, and then make the sucker disappear. <laughs> don't you see? Just let your body hide. I'm here to answer all your bizarre. You got me out feet there, certified. You got a G for a child's affair. I got a power to help you out. So what you wish? I really wanna know. You got a list that's three miles long. No doubt. Well, all you gotta do is rub. Igna Bob, you ain't never had a friend, never had a friend, you ain't, never had a friend, never
4: had a friend you ain't, never had a friend. Like me. You ain't never had a friend like
1: me. Cheers, Robin, we miss you.